in the box, it looks like this. I'm not going to tell you what's in it. You have to get one to find out. But this is what it is. And uh, this one actually has nothing in it. It's just a demo. So that's it. You have to find out what's in it. So great. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. For our guest, my name is Andy Farmer. I'm one of the pastors here at Risen Hope Church. Our our uh, lead pastor, Tim Shorey, is actually preaching at a sister church in Sovereign Grace down in South Philadelphia, uh, texting me today saying, man, I was wishing with you, wish I was with you guys, and, and uh, I said, love to have you here, but I get a chance to preach, so you're good where you're at. So, <laughs> um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, our ushers be glad to get you one uh, to make sure you have a chance to to read, or you can look around you for somebody who has a nice uh, leather one and take that. Uh, we're currently preaching through the book of Ephesians. Um, also, we're taking the next few weeks, as, as Alex mentioned, uh, to uh, connect these sermons to our Explore class for those who are considering church membership with us. So, uh, a number of folks have picked up the Explorer Manual. We'll have those available in the, in the, uh, at, the, at the book area after the service, too, if you'd like to buy one. They cost $5, and you can register essentially for the class, but this is the class. Uh, no extra classrooms. This is it. So we're actually using these sermons to, uh, to, to touch on some of the values and practices at, Covenant, at Risen Hope so we can have an idea of better who we are as a church. So if you're taking Explore, this week's message is actually going to correspond to session eight. So it's actually the last session. We're, we're deferring the order of the book in order to stay as close as possible to the order of the, of the, the text of Scripture here. So we're in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, and I'll be preaching beginning with the first verse. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is plain, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Lord, bless the reading of your word and our hearing as we open it up in preaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, in verse 8 in this text, Paul says he's been given the task of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Tim's done an outstanding job preaching through the first two chapters of this letter, and he'd be the first to tell you that it's hard to find anything more gloriously unsearchable than chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. And in the second half of chapter 2, which we will, 3, which we'll actually cover later, Paul's about to launch from there into one of the most unsearchable prayers that can ever be prayed. But he stops, actually interrupts himself in mid-sentence. In fact, if you read, if you go back into the text, the last, the last verse in, in chapter 2, verse 22 of chapter 2, he says, In him you, are al- you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You can move straight from there down to verse 14 of chapter 3 where he says, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. So what you see here in the first 13 chapters, 13 verses of chapter 3, is an interruption. Paul is is speaking. He's going from this amazing truth of the gospel, and he's about to pray on the basis of that amazing truth in chapters 1 and 2. He's about to pray for them before he gets to practical application. Verses 4 Chapters 4 through, through 6 are now practical application of chapters 1 through 3. And so he's going to move right into prayer so he can transition. But he stops. Almost like when he's writing, he stops and says, you know what? There's something important I need to drop in here before we pray. Because he's, what he's aware is that these people have heard this amazing truth about what Jesus Christ has done. But they've heard it from a man who's writing from prison. And the question he's addressing is, if this is true, why are you in jail? Now, if you, we had time, we go back and look at Acts 21, where we read that Paul was in Jerusalem and was accused of taking a Gentile into the temple. Incidentally, it's, it was an Ephesian Gentile that he took into the temple. In other words, he was acting on the basis of the gospel he was preaching. The Jews wanted to stone him for blasphemy, but the Roman guards actually put him in protective custody. They were going to hold him until things kind of blew over, but they never blew over. And so he winds up staying in protective custody for two years. No trial, no verdict, no charge. It's just stuck in prison awaiting whatever's going to happen next. And it never stops. He knows they're plotting to kill him. As soon as he gets out of prison, 
he will be killed. And so what he does is he does what any Roman citizen could do, which is make his appeal. I don't believe I'm going to get a fair trial here. I want Caesar to render a verdict on me. And so he's allowed then to go to Rome. And so the rest of the book of Acts is Paul traveling to Rome under guard and then being placed in prison in Rome where he finishes out his days as far as we know. And because Acts sort of ends with him in prison in Rome. And it's from this Roman prison that Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians. So Paul was accused by Jews and imprisoned by Gentiles for preaching that God was going to reconcile everyone together. What's up with that? That's what he's asking. That's what he knows they're asking. This doesn't make sense. So he needs to connect the dots for them. Here's why I'm in prison. Here's why this is taking place. So that you, as he says in verse 13, so that you don't lose heart for what I'm suffering because it is in in fact for your glory. Somehow what he's suffering is for their glory. So how does glory come out of Paul being in prison? What are we meant to get out of this passage today? And I believe it can be summarized like this. God's eternal purpose to reconcile sinners to himself and to each other changes everything. God's eternal purpose to reconcile sinners to himself and to each other Changes everything. And we're going to see in this text three ways that happens. There's a mystery that changes everything. There's a message that changes everything. And there's a mission that changes everything. So the mystery, first, the mystery that changes everything. This is the first part of what he's saying. Paul describes In this text, the delivery of the gospel as a mystery that's been revealed to him by virtue of his distinct calling as an apostle. Now this word mystery is very important. Paul uses it four times in this text. Now we think of mystery, when you think of mystery, what comes to your mind? What comes to my mind is detectives. You don't have mystery novels without detectives. You don't have mystery shows without detectives. You don't have mystery movies without detectives. Mysteries are solved by detectives. Detectives are people who look at the clues and figure out the truth of what's happening through deductive reasoning. Now, I did a little Google search on detectives. And I found a website that, that did a poll of about 400,000 people to find out who are the greatest, the top 20 fictional detectives of all time. And so I was looking at this interesting list. Now, I'm not going to read through the whole list because some of the people I don't even know. 
But I found some interesting things. Number 19, one of my favorites, Magnum P.I. <laughs> Number 18, a little more contemporary, Sean Spencer. Anybody know Sean Spencer? Okay, Sean Spencer. Number, number 18. Number 16, old reliable Dick Tracy. Interestingly, number 12, Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> Obviously for results, not necessarily for method. Now you get down to the top five. Number four, the Scooby-Doo gang. Who, who knows, who can guess what number two is? Not Poirot, no. He doesn't even show up on the list. Who? Sherlock Holmes, number two. If Sherlock Holmes is number two, who's number one? Batman. I don't get that at all. I don't know what he does that's detective-like. I don't get it. But I looked on the website and it's called dorkly.com, so I'm assuming that has something to do with it. So anyway, the point is, Paul doesn't need a detective. Because on that list, there's no Nancy Drew, there's no Miss Marple, there's no Poirot, there's no Columbo, unbelievably, there's no John Shaft, unbelievably, there's no Rimming the Steelers. Where are all the great detectives? I don't know. But Paul doesn't need any of them. He doesn't need a detective. Because in the Bible, mystery means something that cannot be figured out. You can't reason yourself to resolve this mystery. It must be revealed from outside of you. What Paul is saying is that he's the one to whom this mystery has been revealed. You see that in verse 2. This stewardship of God's grace was given to me for you. Verse 3. The, this mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse 4. My insight into the mystery of Christ. My insight into the mystery of Christ. Why does he do this? Is it because he's got some kind of huge ego tripped? Hey man, this came from me. I got it. Nobody else got it but me. So listen to me. No. He says it because it's true. No brag, just fact. This is the testimony Paul gave of God's calling on him when he was on trial in, in Acts. Back in this section of, of, of his life, when he's on trial, uh, he's brought and he's, he's asked to tell his story. And so he tells the story. And remember, Paul was converted in a dramatic way on the, on the road to Damascus where he was going to persecute Christians. And so he's dramatic, has an encounter with Jesus Christ. We see a little bit of it in that moment. But in Acts uh, later on in Acts, Paul actually talks about what the interaction, what happened in the interaction, what Jesus told him. And here's what he says. This is what he says Jesus told him as he's defending himself, as he's explaining why he's doing what he's doing. He says, Jesus said, but rise and stand on your feet. This is Acts 26, 16 to 18. Stand on your feet, for I, Jesus, have appeared to you for this purpose. 
to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So he's basically talking about this mystery. I want to show you things that nobody has seen and you need to remember them because this is what your message is going to be. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. He's promising deliverance. We know that ultimately he is killed. And so that deliverance ultimately is a, an eternal deliverance. But deliverance from the Gentiles. To whom I'm sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the message of reconciliation. That's the message he had. That's the message he gave. That's the message that's referenced in Ephesians 2 that we've heard about already. The message of reconciliation. It's important to remind them that this message has come by direct revelation to God, from God to him. He didn't make it up. Nobody else got it. Without this revelation to Paul, it would remain a mystery. Paul's a Jew among Gentiles because God sent him there with the message that the good news of a Jewish Messiah was for the Gentile as well. The reason he makes it a point in this letter is because he's a Jew in a Gentile prison. Put there based on the accusations of the Jews. This doesn't seem like what would happen if God has really revealed a divine mystery to him. So it's natural to say, is this the, the true revelation? Paul, did you miss it? Did you scramble it up somehow? Is there another piece that somebody else has? Is there something else coming that we need to know that helps us figure this out? If it is the true revelation, why is this good news? Is this what we should expect as soon as we believe this? We're going to wind up in prison like you? What's going to happen to us? If that's true, how powerful is God really? Why would he deliver a message like this and then have it result in people's lives going down the tubes? How important is this message? Do we really have to believe it? Is there a way we can just kind of, kind of, Kind of acknowledge it and then live our lives. So Paul has to connect the dots. Basically he's saying, I'm in prison to prove the power of the message. You can lock up the messenger, but you can't lock up the message. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He's pointing to the power of the message. The gospel, as he says in Romans, is the power of God for salvation. The message then, what is that message? It's the message that changes everything. So what about this message changes everything? Now in the big picture, when Paul talks about mystery in the gospel, of the gospel, and he talks about other places as well, he's talking about the full message of the gospel. All that all people, regardless of race, nationality, social status, personal accomplishments, life situations, religious background, are dead in sin and subject to the righteous judgment of God for their guilt as rebels against God's universal righteous rule. And because of his love and not our merit, 
God provided a remedy for this awful condition in the death of his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus, the son, died in our place, but also rose from the grave, conquering the death that came to us as a consequence of sin. Because he did that, those who believe not only have forgiveness of sin... They have eternal life and righteous standing with, in Christ. That's the big picture. That's what Paul calls in, in verse 8 the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what you must believe. Perhaps you're here and that sounds foreign to you. Those are strange words to you. Or you know bits and pieces of that. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the power of God for salvation. There is nothing else you can believe that will deliver you from your sin but the gospel revealed as the mystery. But this mystery language here in, in, in chapter 3, Paul is focusing around a crucial implication of this that it creates a new covenant people, a people eternally not united to Christ and to each other. What he's saying is that the gospel creates a new race of people. A new ethnos of people. A people joined by the reconciling work of the gospel. You'll see that in verse 6 here. Now I'm going to read it, but I'm going to read it in the, in the New International Version. Because I think the New International Version in this case gets... What the, what the original language is trying to communicate and a bit clearer than maybe what you have if you have a, an ESV, which is where I'm reading from. In the NIV, it reads like this, verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery, and again, and this is what he's de defining as the mystery, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Three things. So this, this implication of the, of the unsearchable riches of Christ has been revealed to him as, as a mystery, which is the Gentiles brought into the covenant promises of God, has three implications. Number one, you are now heirs together. Jew and Gentile, heirs together. Those who were rejected are now accepted. We're together in the same family. Whenever you see heir, that kind of language, you're talking about family. You're talking about being ultimately wrapped into God's family. And so that which belongs to Jesus Christ now belongs to you as well. Because you are brother with Christ and sons and daughters of God the Father. So you have, no matter where you're from, you have the same family with all the same family privileges. That's one aspect. Number two, we're together as one body. Those who were divided, if, if it was those who were rejected and now accepted, it also means that those who were divided are now joined. You see, in, if you go to 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about the body, he emphasizes that the body is united and that every member's valued 
and every member has a purpose. We're now the same body. We're all valued and needed. There's no second class. There's no, there's no major parts and minor parts. Paul makes it very clear. We all have purpose. We all have meaning. You can't, if you come into Christ, you have value like the greatest saint you can imagine. There's no distinction. All are valued. All are needed. And then we're together in the same promise. It's a rich biblical term. If we try to distill it down, it basically means that those who were unholy, those who, who could not come into access to God, now have access to God. They are made holy. In fact, what Jesus does is he talks about that's the role of the Holy Spirit, to make us holy. So in a sense, what we're talking about is they share in the holiness of God through the Holy Spirit. So what you can see here is the faint glow of the Trinity. There's something what Paul's doing is he's trying to give them some very important theological implications. We are sons and daughters of the Father. We are members of the body of Jesus Christ. And we are partakers of the life of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, this is a Trinitarian welcome of the Jew and the Gentile both into the full blessings of the new covenant. This matters because salvation is no longer an issue of natural birth. It's an issue of new birth. We're new people. We're new people. The old has passed away. The new has come. The only thing that gets you saved is your need and God's provision for it in Christ. Now, folks, this is relevant. This is relevant for every church. It's relevant for us. Because we gather here as a naturally divided people. There's always more that divides us than keeps us together. Maybe it's a racial divide. Maybe it's an ethnic divide. Maybe we're divided by gender, men and women. Not understanding one another. Not knowing how to relate to one another. Maybe it's an educational background that divides us. Some with graduate degrees. Some GEDs. Money can divide us. Some have plenty. Some don't have enough. Married or single divides us. Kids or no kids divides us. Having a history of addictions or not Having a history of addiction divides us. Growing up in a Christian home or not divides us. Blue collar or white collar divides us. What we think about politics or guns or affirmative action can divide us. These divides just don't go away when you walk into the church building. You don't walk into this building and everybody's the same. We bring those natural divisions into this building with us. It's human. It's human. Let's just be real about it. Because if we're not real about it, we won't get the point of what the gospel's meant to do. We're not looking for a surface uniformity. We're not looking for everybody to look the same, dress the same, talk the same, act the same, use the same words, like the same music. Vote in the same primary. We're not looking for that. 
Look at something deeper with that. Because that kind of unity or that kind of division isn't what God wants for his people. God has given us the game changer in the gospel. Where we all stand on level ground. Sinners saved by grace. Saints walking out our salvation with unlimited potential in Jesus Christ. So we all have. With the gospel at the center, we can work through any natural division. After all, we're heirs together, we're all members together, we're all sharers together in the promise of God. The great uniter of the gospel is what matters most. And that leads us to the third thing that changes everything, and that's the mission. The mission that changes everything. So, recapping. You're going to see this in verses 9 through 12, but recapping what's happened and what Paul's saying is he's faithfully stewarded this revelation from God in verses 2 and 3. He's been a faithful minister of the gospel that was entrusted to him in verses 7. He's humbly preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's done his job, but now he sits in prison. So now what? What happens now? It's, it's the natural question. Is this where it all ends? Other apostles are being put in prison. Some are being killed. There's not enough messengers. There's not enough apostles to go around. They're having to travel thousands of miles. Paul, Paul sends his letter to Colossians a, 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 a thousand miles from him. And he's never even met that church. There's just not enough leaders to go around. Is this where it all ends? Paul, if you're not in the game, is it game over? And you can almost feel Paul's delight as he starts to write the next sentence. Because he knows there's a plan that's so mind-boggling that nobody could see it coming. Not the Ephesians. Not Sherlock Holmes. Not the Scooby-Doo gang. Not even Batman could see this coming. Not even the inhabitants of the spiritual realms could see this coming. And so you read in verse 9, what is that plan to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God has a plan for the gospel that extends beyond the reach of the apostles. <coughs> the key to the spread of the gospel is not the apostle Paul, it's the church. You and I are entrusted with the, the task of the mission of the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't room for great leaders 
and heroes in the church. The church needs its apostles like Paul. It needs its great theologians like Augustine. It needs its great reformers like Luther. It needs its great evangelists like Whitfield. It needs its great preachers like Spurgeon. It needs its great missionaries like Lottie Moon. It needs its great pastors like Lloyd-Jones. It needs its great statesmen like Martin Luther King. But these all do their work and then they pass on. They're gone. They're not here. None of them finished what they started. None of them closed the book, what they were supposed to do. Only the church endures. Only the gathered communities of God's saints can express the manifold wisdom of God in this earth and beyond. The mission of the church changes everything. A note that Paul says that the mystery is brought to light for everyone. He says that in verse 9, and then in verse 10 he says, then he makes a point to highlight that this manifold wisdom, this multi-displayed wisdom of God is displayed to the, quote, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What's up with that? Now, there are two popular ways this idea of rulers and authorities in heaven is interpreted. One is popular in some charismatic areas where this is used to speak of the devil in all his minions. In other words, in this view, the church exists to push back the power of Satan. Where the where the where the church is, the power of Satan is pushed back. I don't have any problem with that. It's not really what it's saying here. The other is, you'll find in some liberal context where they use this to speak of the corrupt human institutions. In this view, what it talks about is when the church does social justice, the spiritual realm is impacted as well. But Paul's words are best understood here at face value, rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This doesn't automatically rule out the devil and his workers. We don't really know that all that goes on in the heavenly realm, whether the heavenly realm is simply heaven or it's, an, or it's a, a concept of all, the, all the, the spiritual world beyond us. We don't really know from this text what Paul's referring to. We certainly know it isn't just the, dynamic, the demonic realm because he would say that. He's using the heavenly realm to include angels, God's servants as well. And since human institutions are influenced by spiritual forces, this includes them as well. If there is injustice and evil in this world, there is evil behind that evil in a spiritual sense. And so, and so this does mean it speaks to that as well. So human institutions are here. And he says to everyone, that includes evil institutions. Injustice, hypocrisy. No realm is left outside the manifold wisdom of God. That's what he's saying. No realm. But this isn't, isn't a verse that tells the church to go into spiritual mapping and identify territorial spirits. And it isn't a verse that tells the church to overthrow unjust worldly powers. 
This is important when we think about what we look, where we look for the activity of God. Now, I, want to, I want you to get this. Where do we look for God at work? Now, there are always people who are looking for God's answer to the problems of life and the world and evil. They look for it to come in some great spiritual movement, some display of God's miraculous power, some cosmic realigning of world events, some return to Christianity by our government. What this verse teaches, however, is that those angelic beings that we think are at work trying to work in the world to make changes so that the gospel can go forth. Those who are out there, we're supposedly looking for them to be working. Where are you working? Where is, the, where is God working? Where is the devil working? All those, they're not looking at world events. What Paul's saying here is they're looking at us. They're watching us. That blows your mind. There's a whole lot of crazy things going on in the world that don't really attract the attention of the rulers and powers in the heavenly places. They're marveling at the church. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. We're in a basement. Can they even see us down here? But the angelic world, they're saying, wow! They're in a basement. Who saw that coming? Isn't this cool? Six months ago, this basement was empty and musty. Now it's filled with a multifaceted display of the saints, different ages, different ethnicities, some Jews, some Gentiles, men and women, multiple generations, mature believers and new Christians, former addicts, former altar boys, former soldiers, former Marxists, that's me, blue collar, white collar, Republicans, Democrats, and right upstairs, there's a whole other expression of the manifold wisdom of God. What is God doing? We can't keep up. That's what the angels are saying. We have to have that understanding or we'll miss the primary things God is doing in this world. And so, turning the corner, I want to look a little bit about what the angels are seeing with us. What, is he, what are they seeing here? What is this expression of the manifold wisdom of God? It doesn't mean we corner the market. They're not, they're not only looking at us. There's a lot of works they're looking at. We're not the only one. But we are one, and they're looking at us. So let's look at this mission from where you and I sit here today. Our vision statement says, worshiping God and welcoming all with gospel truth and neighbor love. That's filled with mission. We want to display the manifold wisdom of God to those around us. This takes you and me as individuals. It takes us as a local body. It takes this local body in partnership with other local churches. Now, 
there are certain things that you need to do that the church as an organized body can't do. You can get to know your neighbor, you can love them, you can display the fruit of the gospel before them, you can pray for the opening of their eyes and the loosening of their, of their chains. We'll see Paul talk about that in chapter 6. You can share the good news, you can help them respond to the irresistible grace, saving grace of God, you can help them get established in faith, you can build them into fellowship of the saints, you can help them be disciples, the church can provide equipping for that work, we'll see that in Ephesians 4, and plan initiatives and strategies, but only you and I can do that part of the work. That's what we heard about in Dave's testimony. Dave and Paul just said, you know what, let's do some work. Give us some tools, we'll do some work. That's the church expressed through individuals. There are things in this great mission, though, that we're not able to do on our own. That belong to the church as a body. And there are things an individual church cannot do. And that's why we need partnership with other churches. So, we're now in our Explore class. Just to let you know. I want to take a few minutes as we turn to close to talk about our particular mission at Risen Hope. Simply put, we exist here in eastern Delaware County for the sake of the mission of the gospel. If all we ever do is enjoy being Christians in our Christian basement, doing Christian things with other Christians, we'll fail in our reason for existence. That's why we're here. That's why we were put here. We're a mission. John Stott said this, An introverted church turned in on itself, preoccupied with his own survival, has virtually forfeited the right to be a church. For it is denying a major part of its own being, As a planet which ceases to orbit is no longer a planet, so a church which ceases to be in mission is no longer a church. In order to qualify for the name church, we must be a community deeply and constantly aware of our sentness and actively loyal to this part of our Christian identity. Our commitment to expressing the manifold wisdom of God in this mission is threefold through evangelism, in mercy and justice, and in church planning. And I offer these thoughts to you not because it's something I feel like you need to do as much as I'm grateful that you're doing it. I'm grateful that you are folks who live on mission and that we're doing this together. So let's talk about those three briefly as we close. Evangelism. At Risen Hope, we define successful evangelism as simply proclaiming the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. We're not going to save anybody. We're not going to convince anybody the gospel's true. We have no reconciling power. We have no saving power. Our message is foolishness to many of the people who will hear it. But it's the power of God to those who are being saved. That's the work of God. And so we do outreaches. Yesterday, Bill led a laundromat outreach. That's evangelism. Kevin and George led an outreach at 69th Street. That's evangelism. We have Bridge in the Box with Dave and Paul. There's a Bridge in the Box here at this church. 
in the building. There are other things going on. You guys are reaching out. We're doing evangelism. We need to see that as essential to who we are. We want to be out in the community. We want to be people who live in our communities because we have the words of eternal life. So we evangelize. We look for opportunities to befriend people, to show them neighbor love, and then to articulate the reason for the hope that's within us, which they see and they want to know about. So evangelism, mercy ministry. We've talked this this past fall about our relationship with Covenant Mercies, how we're in partnership with a a ministry that's designed to care for orphans in Africa, a place we could never go to, but we can support and see good work being done there. We're also partnering local with local services and ministries that are meeting local needs, things like Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center. And I'm very excited in a, in, a, in, a, in a couple of months we're going to be rolling out an initiative for our community groups and how we can be doing this as part of our community group life as well. Very excited for that. But the goal of Mercy Ministry is not just to do good works. It's to, to do good works so that we are among people who need the good works and so they see the love of Christ in us. And we serve because that's who we are. And through that, God uses those opportunities for divine appointments to engage people so that their true need for Jesus might be spoken to. And then mission and church planning. We see our mission from neighborhoods to nations. Now locally, we have a global initiatives team who's committed to helping us pray for and look for ways to impact the world. That actual, that that. That uh, billboard back there is actually, uh, is actually our display so that when you come in, you're reminded of the worldwide impact and need of the gospel. And we want you to be aware of that. We, they pray together once a month. I think the next one's like the 17th or something like that. Up here, uh, uh, David and Carrie Heisler uh, lead a prayer time. It's just a time after, after service we can just pray for the mission of the gospel Beyond our ability to touch people on our own. So that's a very important part of what we're doing. There'll be other international opportunities as well. But church planting is our primary mission strategy. It's where we're seeking to focus. We're, because we're a church being planted. We want to be a church that's planted. We don't want to grow to be a huge size. We want to be planted and then look to plant other churches. The goal is not big church. The goal is church locally impacting communities. We're in gospel mission. Think about it this way. We're in gospel mission with every local church and ministry that preaches the gospel. We know God is working there. We know God is working here. We're in this together. We're in gospel mission with Beulah Tabernacle. But we're also called to be in gospel partnership, gospel koinonia, gospel fellowship, an intentional partnership with other local churches so that we might do mission together and support one another in mission. To plant and to care for one another over the long haul. Church isolation, like believer isolation, isn't healthy over time. So we're connected for mission and for care. Historically, 
speaking, our partnership in sovereign grace, which is the family of churches to which we belong, has been overseen by a group of gifted leaders. That's how it emerged. It was an apostolic movement. But as the number of churches grew and the geographic distribution of the churches expanded, that became an increasingly ineffective way to build together. That's inherently ineffective for growth. And so, we've reorganized sovereign grace <coughs> So that there still is a leadership team, but their job is to manage the, the overall ministry. But the, 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 the governing of Sovereign Grace is now among all the local church elders. Throughout, if you're a, a Sovereign Grace church, Tim and I are elders in Sovereign Grace. And so therefore, we are part of the governing structure in Sovereign Grace. We have a book of church order that defines what that relationship looked like between churches and how it functions and how we work together. For common purpose and to stay in common purpose. Most elders will have some role in the partnership he, here either on a regional or national level. So Tim is the regional leader of the, elder, of the churches in the northeast region. That's why he's in uh, South Philly today. I'm on the National Executive Committee of Sovereign Grace. Which governs. The, what's going on on behalf of the other elders. I was elected to that place. And I'm, I, I serve with other men throughout the country and throughout the world. There's, a, there's people beyond the United States who are on that committee as well. We meet and we discuss and we help get a sense of where we are as a, as a group. Mark Prater, who's been here to preach, who's an elder at Covenant Fellowship Church, is the executive director of Sovereign Grace. Though he's not a senior pastor, he serves as an elder in a church. All people who are serving in leadership in Sovereign Grace are local church elders. Because we're an elder-led movement. If you want to access the BCO, if you're, if you're into polity, if you're a polity wonk, um, you can go onto the church, Sovereign Grace uh, Church's website and they actually have, you can download the, the, the BCO, the Book of Common, uh, Book of Church Order. Uh, if, or if you have insomnia, you can download download that too. That will help as well. Uh, but it is meaningful. It has purpose. It, it really does govern what we do. With this partnership, we can strategize to affect areas in need of the gospel, preaching churches. I just had this, the experience this past week to be down uh, at, the, at the pastor's college where we train pastors to do a week on counseling. Me and another pastor, uh, elder from, from the West Coast, training guys who are looking to go into ministry. Um, it's, it's how we make sure that we keep men equipped for the work of ministry. We can also help churches stay healthy and stay the course in gospel ministry. There's a church in our region that is in pastoral transition. And so, so, uh, so for, the, for, for the next two months, for the last two months, we've had different pastors in Sovereign Grace go and preach at that church in their transition. So they're getting preaching from, from, uh, from pastors. We have... Le worship leaders going and leading worship there. We have guys who are on a counseling schedule who are able to access for counseling since they currently don't have a local pastor who's able to be involved. So we're caring for one another in Sovereign Grace as well. You see, it's all about disciples who make disciples, churches who plant churches. That's what we're all about. Now in closing, I want to show you a video. Um, it's about a seven minute video. But it's just a, it's just a, a glimpse into one expression of this work in Sovereign Grace. We're actually going to be spending some time in the next few weeks or so uh, talking about our partnership with Sovereign Grace because Tim is committed to making sure that this isn't just peripheral in our thinking. 
that this is essential to who we understand ourselves to be as risen hope. But this will give you a little bit of a taste. It's actually about uh, one of our churches in Bristol, England. So you'll be able to kind of enjoy some different, um, some, some different uh, way people talk. Um, so I don't say accents, but so enjoy that. So let's, let's go to that and I'll